Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Vanessa LaRose was born into Scientology as a second-generation member in San Diego, California. And she grew up in the church in the Los Angeles area as a public member, a non-C organization member, and attended Scientology-based schools in her formative years. A few years back, Vanessa faced the choice of disconnecting from her best friend and other people she knew were not SPs, suppressive people, a Scientology term, and to stay in a belief system that was causing her more and more cognitive dissonance, or to face disconnection from her parents and loved ones, a very hard choice. But she chose her freedom. Vanessa is an active volunteer in the Los Angeles animal rescue community and an avid seeker of knowledge, currently pursuing higher education and enjoying discovering her unfolding love of psychology, philosophy, and human services, and is currently on the Dean's Honor List and was recently awarded a scholarship from the Department of Psychology at her college. Vanessa has been dealing with the aftermath of the disconnection from her parents and also other loved ones for a couple of years and was interested in coming on indoctrination to be able to share with others some of the experiences she's had and things she's learned along the way, and she hopes her experience can be helpful to anyone listening especially those under the radar and those struggling with depression, and to also give herself the gift of her voice ultimately giving herself the right to freedom of speech. Here's Vanessa now. So I am so happy to be able to have Vanessa with me today and um for those of you who are going to be listening, you're going to be able to hear a lot about her experiences and also for people who are going to be watching on YouTube eventually, um, you'll be able to see her and see us talking to each other. But I have to say, Vanessa, it's really nice to see you. Thank you, Rachel. It's really nice to be able to talk to you and see you. Yeah, it's a treat. And so, I, um, so I, I'm really grateful that you want to be able to talk and that you were in contact about wanting to do this because that's very significant to me. It's significant about wanting to not only share your experiences, but also be able to say that you are at this place in your life and this time in your life where it seems like you're ready and that you have uh, some information that you've acquired that you want to impart on other people and that you're also feeling safe enough to do it, which is, you know, a tall order for people coming out of the situation that you came out of. So I give you so much credit just with your strength. And I, I look forward to hearing about what you're learning. And I look forward to learning from you today and having our listeners learn from you. So can you just spend a moment introducing yourself and who you are and what you do? And then we'll, then we'll go back in time uh, with some special effects. I'll just ask you about your history. It's not really so special, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, to your point about timing, I think timing has been everything. Um, getting to the point where uh, I feel comfortable and actually have the vocabulary to describe some of the things has been huge. Like 
finding out uh, specific terms or new words or correct definitions that had been repurposed previously have been um, has been huge. And uh, I am Vanessa LaRose. I'm I live in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in the Church of Scientology. I left. Uh, it was a very slow process. Uh, I officially got disconnected from my my dad about three years ago and my mom two years ago. And uh, kind of just been sitting in silence for no reason. And I've been pursuing education and studying psychology, um, which is big because I was raised with a huge fear of it. <laughs> and so, like you said, overcoming that fear and um, being able to talk to you about that is awesome. And hopefully it can help other people. I can share a little bit about what I've learned. And I've looked at myself kind of like a test subject <laughs> in learning about all of this. And it's really interesting. Very interesting. Okay. There's so many different directions for us to go in. I guess I, I'm going to jump around a little because I, I want, when you were just talking about being fearful of psychology and that you're studying psychology now, uh, which is a wonderful thing. And again, I want to be able to talk to you about what you're learning and then also go back to your early history. But in the middle, you contacted me a while ago and we started talking and, you know, I know that you had, hmm, you had come to me a couple of times, but I'm sure with a lot of trepidation. And so I'm wondering what that was like for you just to make the appointment, just knowing also how you had been conditioned to be fearful of that. Uh, terrifying. <laughs> um, definitely. Uh, in Scientology, which now I understand why, but in Scientology, mental health care and getting mental health care treatment is pretty much a fate worse than death. Like if you take any type of uh, psychotropic medication at any point, you are deemed an illegal species. Um, so it's kind of like, you don't even want to go there. Like you're untouchable to your former organization if you go through with that. Um, so it's really scary. And a lot of people turn to other things instead of going to mental health care. And that really is what, you know, I'm passionate about talking about and listening. I listened to April's episode, which was so incredible. And uh, I was so happy that she brought up the topics of suicide because that was one of the main things that got me out was just looking around me and seeing that I felt like I was coming from a suicide making machine and people weren't seeking mental health care. They were just offing themselves because they really thought that the psychs were out to control their minds and um, the psychs, you know, psychologists, therapists, uh, psychiatrists, all of them are under the same umbrella. And um, the first time I came to see you, it had been through contacting a couple people in the underground network, which thank God we have. There's a huge underground network, people willing to support and help you you want to get out. Um, and I had found somebody who was my friend and the person just kept saying, Rachel Bernstein, call Rachel Bernstein. And finally I was like, all right, this woman is a cult specialist. If there's any therapist who I would feel 
comfortable talking to because it was a really rough time. I was being gaslighted, you know, <laughs> um, and I needed to talk to somebody and I was very down and I'm so glad that I did. I'm glad you did too. And I, and I want to, I'm taking a lot of notes while you're talking. I, I want to be able to talk about the gaslighting, but I also, whenever you're using a certain term that I, I I'm familiar with, but the, the people listening might not be, um, I'm glad you defined psychs, what psychs are, which, you know, it just, it has this, you know, very nefarious sort of sound to it, right? Even though psychology yeah. is not a dangerous thing at all. Can you define what an illegal PC is? Yeah, so an illegal PC would mean that you can no longer receive auditing services. PC is pre-clear and clear is, um, you know, the state of not having a reactive mind, which in my opinion is our human emotions <laughs> and your <laughs> the whole goal of Scientology is to eliminate that reactive mind and be completely analytical all the time. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty big fear. And especially, you know, my mother has dedicated her life to becoming an auditor of Scientology. And so to be possibly labeled a illegal PC, or, you know, I was worried too, that they just had spies outside of your office or, uh, that they could read my emails to you. Like your fear is so strong at that point that, um, it's not like you don't even want to text people who you know are out because you might get turned in. Like it, it gets really um, dark and twisty in that tunnel. And uh, so sitting in your waiting room for the first time, I mean, I was almost close to a panic attack. I was like shaking and it was really uh, empowering to walk out and also know that nothing happened. And it was felt like a very safe space and I could share my feelings and I hope, I hope more more people find therapists to talk to. If they need to. I hope so too. And I, I just, mm, again, the bravery that it took to just come to talk about your experience, knowing that you were feeling panic, just waiting in the waiting area. And something that I've talked about a little bit in the past is that there are some people from who were in Scientology who were, again, made to feel so terrified of going for help um, that Sometimes we don't even meet for the first time in my office. We'll meet uh, in the hallway, somewhere public, or in the bench outside my office. and Or they'll come into my office, but I'm, I can't close the door. Uh, just sort of that desensitization therapy, that I think the steps that people need to go through in order to feel safe and to, in order to know that I'm not up to anything. I'm there for them. Uh, and And so... Can you talk a little bit about the gaslighting that you were saying that you were experiencing at the time? Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was very confusing to question your sanity and have everybody, I don't think nobody was uh, doing gaslighting as a strategy at the time. It was just built into the culture right so like uh i mean your whole life if you're a scientologist and you say i feel one way and that's not part of the program you don't feel that way you know so it's kind of gradients of gaslighting and when i left and i was um sending these really intense emails back and forth to my dad and just laying out what i my truth you know and um 
just being told it wasn't true and it wasn't real and that these things didn't really happen. And, um, you know, uh, also that people I knew who were good people were being, they were telling me that they were suppressive people and they were, you know, persona non grata at the church anymore. And that, it just gets really confusing when you're wondering like, what is real life? And especially on the cusp of when you're in Scientology and you're coming out into the real world, it feels like you're on a bad acid trip. You don't know who to trust. You don't know which side is correct. You don't know, you know, like I remember specifically to my dad's credit, I was having a really hard time. And I said, am I crazy? And he said, you're not crazy. And he left it at that. And that meant a lot to me. Right. Yeah. It's such a fascinating thing. I, I've never thought of it this way, but you're so right that it's not necessarily intentional gaslighting, but it is built into the system that that the people who are helping you but are saying, no, you're not feeling this way, or if you are, it's not for the reasons that you think or it's not because of us, it's because of you, or, you know, sort of the redirection of the pointing of the fingers and the relabeling and re-diagnosing. It is very confusing, but yeah, I think the people in it are not intentionally doing it. That's the training. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, you're not, you know, you don't want to be what's called Casey or Banky, meaning that you're acting from your reactive mind, you're acting emotional. So, you know, when you bring up things like, hey, why are all of these kids committing suicide? Oh, you know, I, I have a feel you're bringing up like real concerns and they're telling you that's not why this is not, you know, this. my dad specifically over and over again said um, that my friend did not kill herself due to Scientology. And it was a situation where she I watched her melt down on Facebook, you know, like, how can you tell me that didn't I mean. Of course, there's a, a ton of factors that go into play with suicides and things like that, of course. But to not even acknowledge that that was the only mental health counseling she was getting, <laughs> and, you know, like mm -hmm. that, it plays with you a little bit, you know? It does. And I know the situation that you're talking about with this person who is, you know, having this breakdown on Facebook one, and that was a couple of years ago, but one of the saddest parts of it for me, reading through the different posts that she was making, was being very upfront about the fact that she knew something was tremendously wrong, that she was reeling from having been through trauma or feeling alone and, and being very confused about what's real and what's not, and if it's worth it to be alive, and just you know, asking all these sort of existential questions. And that there wasn't the response from the organization of, we're so sorry you're going through this. How can we help? It was this redirection. It was a finger pointing to her that she was doing something wrong or kind of complaining or just not doing the program right. And so you just don't, among other reactions, but that she, you just don't feel like you're held and protected and and you know, luckily she had people throughout that who were trying to do what they could to try to prevent something bad from happening. Um, but sometimes 
still getting to that point in your life is just more than you can take on. And you feel like the only way to relieve yourself of those feelings is to end your life. It's very tragic. And then seeing that even after it happened, still there wasn't a taking of responsibility. Well, and the core belief system is that you just drop your body and pick up a new one. So it doesn't have the same context to us that maybe it would or the same depth like having um being able to just drop your body body and start over again makes it seem like a viable option and through things i've learned now like um you know everything is moods <laughs> moods pass right um i've read some research about how they installed suicide nets for people jumping off bridges and like suicide rates went down extreme numbers because people changed their minds afterwards or things like that and um i just really wish that she would have been able to um reach out for some different type of mental health or whatever you know um and also her and i had shared a scientology counselor auditor for a long time and i would see her passing we went to the same schools we weren't particularly close but she was somebody who was kind of always a little wild, always a little troublemaker. And I had internally suspected maybe there was a little bit of mental illness flaring itself. And so to see that maybe Scientology was quote unquote working for somebody else, but didn't work for her. Right. You know, and seeing mm -hmm. that a lot over time. Right. Yeah. Right. Because people are going to have different wiring. And so then they can't be given the same exact thing and have it work in the same way for everyone. That's just an impossibility. But there isn't a, a looking at that, you know, well, how do we vary what we do to fit what this person needs? It's how does this person need to change to fit what we're going to be providing for everyone and to make it work? You bring up this really kind of beautiful image, though, of a safety net that, yeah, there have been nets put under bridges and it's. And right, there's some people who will be caught and then be so grateful that they had this other chance. And to also see that people were out there rescuing them and cared enough to rescue them. Sometimes that's all people really want to know and they need to know. And so I think she was she was needing and she was reaching out for the group to provide her with a safety net and it just didn't happen. Yeah, and it's scary to even reach out to ex-members. I mean, especially in the beginning, you're so scared that everything's going to be reported back to the church. And, um, you know, they have a lot of money. Anybody listening to your podcast, I'm sure is familiar with the fair game policy. You know, find out what it is that's important to them and wreak havoc and all of these things. So I don't know if she even had reached out to anybody in the ex-community. Maybe she had. I don't know. But like, it's a lot different now also, and the times have changed, which is awesome. I think people are getting to be a lot less afraid. I mean, this is a huge step for me. Hopefully I can, somebody will see me and want to tell their story and not have to live with it inside of them. Yes. I want to be able to talk about what you are studying now. I think it would be good though for us to go back so that we understand about sort of how far you've come to get to this place uh, and then to be able to, to talk about why certain courses and certain subject matter matters as much as it does for now. Okay, so 
So now I'm envisioning you as a little girl. So where where were you when you were little and what was the situation? Um, so I was born at home silently with no drugs as per the policy. So uh, yeah. Can you also explain silent births and silent labor? and sil- Yeah, because that's something pe- not a lot of people know about. Yeah. Uh, the idea is that you don't want to have any key phrases or sounds of pain or anything because it would um, become an engram, which is like a mental image that's lost um, for the child starting off life. So the parents do it um, out of love for the child so that the child's not uh, apparently thinking like their parents hate them or something, you know, or that there's a term because it's a moment of pain and unconsciousness. And that is when engrams record. So I guess being born is like really traumatic. So if you can uh, have your baby silently, you know, and same thing with the drugs, the drugs would lock the engram allegedly. Okay. Right. So this would, this idea was developed by a person who uh, never gave birth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. He (laughs) never gave birth. So, um, right. Uh, Because I can't imagine how that's possible. And maybe there's a way to make some sound or do something, but, but no, it's totally silent. And, And so also it's true for anyone else in the room, including the person who is giving birth that they can't take any pain medications and they can't express. I mean, maybe they could take pain medication, but you can't, you know, it's just more the words coming into the baby's mouth. Um, the mom just can't take pain medication or shouldn't, you know, I'm sure you can do whatever you want with your body, but if you're trying to do it the right way, then yeah. Uh, to answer your question, my parents, or you didn't ask, but to give you a little background, my parents, (laughs) my parents, (laughs) uh, my parents met at the San Diego org in the eighties. And my dad had just come back from traveling the world with his surfboard. He was like a super cool, interesting dude who landed in San Diego and got into Scientology. And he, he met my mom there and they decided to get together and have a little girl. That was her postulate, which in Scientology means like intention. Okay. Okay. So uh, do you know what was appealing to him about Scientology? Because here he was this free spirit doing his thing, clearly. And so what what was the appeal? Um. He said he had tried out all different religions, and for him, this was what worked. Um, In now having a bit more context, uh, I think that he had done a lot of psychedelics. (laughs) He he had told me that, you know, that's the big joke. It's just funny because Scientology is so anti-drug, you know, and so Mm -hmm. he... um, it was the time where people were joining the Hare Krishna, they're doing transcendental meditation, all sorts of different things. And he liked this one. And he, um, yeah, I mean, and my mom um, happened to get a personality passed on her front door. And that's how she walked in. Uh-huh. Right. And I think, okay. I think both of them were looking for community. You know, that's why uh-huh. a lot of people yeah. reach out for things like this. They want community. And it seems like a cool community with nice people because there are nice people in there. Right. Okay. 
and then also the personality test, which is so interesting that I've learned a little bit about and about its history also, you know, just yeah. called this Oxford. <laughs> I thought I thought the Oxford capacity analysis test my entire life, which is OCA. I thought it was made at Oxford College, like it says, and it was a real thing. And that gave it validity. And only like somewhat recently did I actually realize that he wrote the test. And I used to grade it, you know, as working for a company that employed people, we would give this test to future employees. Like, really a weird test, too. (laughs) It is very something about killing lions in Africa or hunting lions in Africa. There's a lot of of questions on there that are just, uh, it gives you a printout, and then you have your responsibility level, your happiness level. You have all these different things. And when people are going to get you into Scientology, you're taught to find somebody's ruin, like the area of their life that they're ruined in, allegedly. And you can find that on an OCA usually. If there's a low mark, then you just say, oh, right here it says relationship. Uh, what's going on with your relationship? And you get them to start talking about it. And then you give them the Scientology answer for that. Usually there's a course book or something related to what they need help with. Wow. Okay. So the idea that, first of all, it's called Oxford. So it has this air of um, it being very professional and prestigious when it was just called that. And it could have been called anything and it could have been called the Harvard, whatever, or the Yale, whatever. It was just made up. It was made up thing. Um, So the story that I remember hearing from someone who was there when it was developed many years ago, he was already elderly when he came to talk to me to kind of spill some secrets from when he he had been involved in England when um, the he was working uh, at the Dianetic Center and then um, a seamstress was brought in to to measure them all for clerical collars and clerical uniforms and they were told that they were going to be now a church and that they all busted up laughing because they thought that it was a prank and a joke and it was not at all. Uh, So he said, so that's as much of a church as it is. This is his opinion. But so that was shocking. And then he said, supposedly, well, they were doing that because of the IRS thing at the time. Right. 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 So they could get tax exempt status. And then also what that turned into, I think, was that then they could cry religious persecution. If anyone said anything bad about them, like the time that I didn't want to let um, Scientologists who were there to harass into the support group that I was running for former Scientologists. And when I said that they couldn't be a part of it, then they said they were going to sue me for religious discrimination is what it was. Well, that that loophole has done very well for them <laughs> in the court. Yeah, because they, they have all these protections then that are built in to the law when they say they're religion. And I do remember the night that it was announced to us at the Shrine Auditorium, and it was so uh, powerful, that message that it sent to us as children. The war is over. You know, we are a real religion. And I just remember being so proud. (laughs) Okay, I want to hear that story. And so, okay, so what I heard from this guy, and then I want to hear that story, uh, is that he said that L. Ron Hubbard supposedly was the one, was the first person to take the the test. And so um, his answers are the right ones. So that everyone is going to then be compared to how he would answer those questions. 
And for people then who didn't think that he was well emotionally or psychologically, the more your answers were different from his, it was then seen as being a problem because then you get a lower score. Um, but really, it could be that you were actually healthier and or psychologically healthy, and that's why your answers were different. That's already starting the gaslighting that you're talking about, yeah. right? <laughs> totally. What? Right? Getting <laughs> yeah. a low score might actually mean if I really know the history of this test that I'm healthier, but here it shows that I have more of a problem, right? And that's the head spinning. Okay. So here, so you're at the Shrine Auditorium where there are so many Scientology things happening in LA at the Shrine Auditorium. Um, is it still, or do they still have things at the Shrine? I don't think that they, uh, oh, I, I think so, yeah. Shrine yeah, they still, do. Uh, uh, I don't know if they need it anymore, but I think so. I don't know. I remember at the time um, being super young, being told it was a really important event. You know, the events were always kind of fun because you got dressed up and everybody came out and it was packed then, you know, in the early nineties, it was really um, probably at the height of its membership. And um, it was such an important event that they brought us children up from daycare into the room for the announcement. And if anybody's seen going clear or Leah's show, it's been shown a couple of times this moment where David Miscavige is on stage and he says, the war is over and it was just like so powerful and I remember looking at it my mom and being like what is this and she said they they agree we're a real religion you know and the message that sends to you as a kid like we the we were fighting a war first of all mm-hmm. and now we've won it and it definitely is like that us versus them mentality started mm-hmm. pretty young <laughs> right and I think also just that moment too, how there, I, I'm thinking of the word crescendo, you know, that there was like so built up. Like balloons dropping and fireworks, like it was really stuck. Wow. Okay. He was very proud of the what he had pulled off. And let me tell you, I mean, he really pulled off something. He got them tax exemption status, which they still have to this day. So I know. Which yeah. it blows my mind. It just that blows my mind with all that's known about. Yeah, blows my mind. So okay, all right. So here you you were talking about how your dad was getting sort of sucked in through you know attractive women, but also the in a, in a more serious way the really the need for community and connection, which you're right is is the driving force for a lot of people. And your mom got this personality test on her doorstep and then how did they meet each other Uh, apparently my father had audited my mom a time or two and then he had left to go on a surf safari and she had always said hey where's that cute Dave LaRose and so then they ended up uh, getting together another thing what you were talking reminded me um another thing aside from community what I think my mom at least I know most people do better my mom in particular with structure it provides structure for people and Mm. it provides um a path you know and that is definitely I think a key factor of what got her in and kept her in um but yeah so they met and uh I don't know it wasn't the grand love story from what I hear my dad didn't have any kids my mom had my two brothers um 
and they were, I think, about 10 and 11 or somewhere around there. And my dad did really well with them and they got along awesome. And she said, all right, well, if you want to keep hanging out, let's get married and have a little girl. And that's what they did. And so then you then went to Scientology schools or what Mm -hmm. was the story? I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, so we started off in San Diego, and I went to a school called Apple School. Um, I don't remember much from it. Uh, My brothers had gone there when they were younger, and then their father, I believe, fought pretty hard to keep them away from Scientology schools and stuff, so they were more on the public education spectrum of things. Um, And I don't remember too much about Apple School, but... Uh, then we moved to LA pretty quickly. Um, I think I was about five and we moved in right across the street from the celebrity center to the Shanger Lodge, which was where a lot of Scientologists lived at the time. And I think still, still do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was, it was hard because we actually, my brothers didn't come. They were, I think 15 and 16 at the time and, uh, stayed in San Diego. And we moved up to Los Angeles. I think my dad had a job and I think the San Diego real estate market had crashed. And so, uh, and my mom wanted to study the briefing course full time, which is the course that teaches you how to be an auditor. So we moved up here. Um, I guess the plan was that we were only supposed to be here for a couple of weeks and then go to Clearwater. And we never went to Clearwater. We stayed here. Um, Celebrity Center was a really cool place to grow up with as your backyard, <laughs> you know, they have beautiful facilities. It's the old, uh, I think it's Chateau, Chateau Elise property. It's on Franklin and super beautiful. And I spent years there. I started my first um, Scientology processing. I think I was about six, five or six. And uh, I always liked it there. It was a beautiful place. And I had friends and all of these things. Um, I also went to the school that Leah Remini's mom had in Los Feliz. It was called Academy for Smart Kids. <laughs> and uh, I love it that. Like, it's like, it just cuts right to the chase. Just right to the chase. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, no mystery. So, uh-huh. No, yeah. no, we're not yeah. elitist at all. Right there. Um, so uh, so it was basically like a homeschool with uh 20 kids or so and we were all taught based on you know Scientology but we were taught important things like how to learn uh, how to read and how to write and of course learning how to learn which is a Scientology educational book right so a couple thoughts first of all about Apple school and then this other school um academy for smart kids uh, children. So I have talked to a number of people who went to schools that were run by the group that they were in. Some were okay, but others, in retrospect, didn't really prepare them for kind of mainstream learning and mainstream life. And they felt that they had lagged behind when it came to skills and also being able to learn and question and have other viewpoints and sort of learning how to process other sources of information because there were no other sources of information in these groups. And so I wonder when you're uh, talking about learning how to learn, so how does that get translated in Scientology? What does that mean? Um, There is a very specific book called Learning How to Learn. 
Mm-hmm. And it means in Scientology that there are three barriers to study. The first is lack of math, or the second, I'm not sure which order anymore. Lack of math, there's misunderstood words, and then there's skipped gradient. And if you have any of those things, then you wouldn't be able to learn a topic, which they always uh, hail the study technology as like, which that falls under, it's L. Ron Hubbard's study technology. They always hail it as like miraculous. And I always thought it was um, until I actually like in real time now study things on how to study. And it's completely different, (laughs) completely different. So yeah, we studied a lot of um, study courses by L. Ron Hubbard in order to study other material. And I know that there has been a push to try to get some of these textbooks and some of the curriculum, some of the L. Ron Hubbard curriculum into public schools and private schools, and sometimes they've been successful. Um, so I know the middle one that you talked about, about words, there's a whole word clearing, and that's, I mean, I think there's something yeah. so dissociative about how many hours you spend on every single word, every single word. Uh, the lack of math, can you describe what that is? Yeah, um, Lack of math, and to give people a, a little bit of understanding or math, <laughs> okay, uh-huh, on the got topic it. of uh-huh. what you're talking about, um, a misunderstood word. So basically, you have to read things, and then usually people go through and they give you what's called a star rate checkout, where they pick out the big words or they pick out unusual words and ask you to define it. And if it's not up to their standards, flunk, you have to look up the word, then you have to restudy your material, and then you go back and do it. So that's just arduous and really intense and sometimes really silly words that you know the meaning of, but you just can't put together. You know, it just gets a lot of time. Um, And lack of math is when you are studying something that, say, is pretty wordy, like you were learning about uh, globes, but you had never seen... uh, globe right like you how are you supposed to envision that you need to see in front of you the map and so they have different techniques for getting that you can look at pictures or you have what's called a demo kit a demonstration kit and you do things to represent certain concepts or ideas with that demo kit or you do the least favorite as a child a clay demo where you have to put a concept into clay and get checked out by the supervisor so like you know having to conceptualize words like responsibility is very hard in clay at a young age but we pulled it off (laughs) wow even putting tree in clay when you're a young kid something that's very tangible I mean that's still hard so having it be a concept something intangible wow yeah Wow. That I'm sure it also took a lot of time. And in retrospect, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about this and I want to be able to go back to other things, but in retrospect, thinking about how much time was spent on these sorts of things, it could be that it has a lasting impact that's valuable. And it could be in retrospect that it wasn't. And sometimes it's a combination of different things, but looking back, what do you think? Was there something of value or do you feel like time should have been spent on other things? Um, I think there was value definitely. And the fact that people cared enough to sit down and talk with us about, you know, are you understanding this kind of was the more valuable 
portion. Right. Okay. Um, I do think a lot of time is wasted and it almost ties into that gaslighting thing because sometimes when you don't agree with an L. Ron Hubbard reference, you're told that you have a misunderstood word. Mm. And that is the wasted time. That's where I got hung up a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's an easy right. out. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, so when you don't agree, it's because you misunderstand. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. That reminds me of something that ha- that happened with a teacher in one of the private schools, one of the kids I, I know from years ago who uh, was given a book to read and didn't really like the book and then said, you know, you know, upon assessing this book, I didn't really like it all that much. And the teacher said, uh, well, that's because you didn't understand it and you didn't read it right. You know, like this whole idea, like you can't somehow have your own opinion about it and your own opinion is really valid. Um, And so I'm sure that's also part of what you're getting a chance to experience now that your own interpretation of something is Valid, just as valid as anyone else's, because that's that's going to be a very different concept for someone. Oh, it's mind blowing! Instead of learning just one person's word as science or whatever, it's mm. you're presented in the real world. You're presented with multiple theories and multiple answers, and you get to choose which is the one you resonate with, or or which is scientific, or you know. But there's different. Not every black and white and in the real world you you get to choose how you feel about things right which really engages your critical thinking yeah yeah right okay okay so here is so here you are at uh leah's mom's school and then what and so your parents then were still involved i mean were they working for the church yes so they were working we moved um around la a few times uh, and then in 1998, my grandma, who was in San Diego, uh, her cancer came back pretty bad. And so my mom and I went down to San Diego to take care of her while my dad stayed in L.A. to keep working and pay the bills and stuff and pay for their bridge. Um, and when my grandma passed away, that was like I was nine years old and that was Oh, the hardest summer ever. <laughs> my my parents uh, got divorced shortly after there. Um, ironically enough, I told my mother she was an SP and I disconnected from her. And I moved to Los Angeles to oh, wow. live with my dad um, and was enrolled in Delphi Academy, which uh-huh. is here in LA. Yeah. And of of the Scientology schools, it's known as a really good one. Um, it's definitely uh, the only school that has probably gotten people into college or things like that. Um, and so I kind of started a whole new chapter when coming up here to LA. And mom followed shortly after her and my dad gave getting together a couple times a shot. They went to the Scientology chaplain and um, ended up not working out. But we all ended up in LA. Okay, and so you told your mom that she, that she was an SP, she was a suppressive person, and why was that, according to you? What, how did you define that? Um, she had 
truthfully, she had lost her mom and she was going through a real rough time. And Scientology doesn't allow you to grieve. You're not like, if you show emotion, it's it's a weakness. And so even going through seeing my grandma pass away and all of this, and I think I saw my mom cry one time. And I think that instead of letting those emotions out, she did other things that, um, you know, like kind of hurt our family unit. And so for me, I was just really upset. That I felt like she was being selfish and like unreasonable. And I don't know, I just took it all out on her. I was, I was really pissed. And also that her and my, my dad were getting divorced. I think my dad didn't really want to divorce my mom. I think my mom wanted the divorce. And so I was such a daddy's girl that I was really upset with her for, I don't know, the divorce and all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So that whole idea though, of showing emotion, being a weakness, that there is something, uh, that can come across as so cold, so heartless, um, that here your mom is grieving and then she's seen as having something wrong with her, which is very common um, when people get certain illnesses also within Scientology or other groups that, mm-hmm. that they are often not given the, the compassion, not even sympathy, but just compassion that, that you are afforded by people just in the general community or someone you know, who, you know, you're at the, um, I don't know, laundromat with, and you say you're not well, and they'll show you compassion. But instead, it gets redirected back on you. And so you were just participating in that system. Yeah. And also, just to your point, um, on the emotional tone scale, which we pretty much memorize early on, um, no sympathy is higher than sympathy. So you're better off having no sympathy for somebody than any sympathy at all if you're a true Scientologist. So in retrospect, why do you think that was a value of L. Ron Hubbard's to have no sympathy? Because then you can't have a sympathy for yourself. <laughs> I mean, I think when you're that hardened and, um, you know, you don't want to... And also just wrongdoing. Like, you know, if you went around having sympathy for everybody who was upset or yeah it would cause a problem in there it definitely would right because then people would be distracted they wouldn't have that kind of very mm, strong resolve that work ethic you know that being able to be have your mind very directed and I guess emotion gets in the way I think what also happens is that then there can be divided allegiance and if somebody wants you just to be focused on kind of um, what they want you to be focused on and furthering the goals of the group. If you are feeling bad and if you're having sorrow or loss or whatever it is, that that can slow you down and that can slow down your production level and, and all of it. And you can also be thinking about other people and not thinking about the him or people he wants you to be thinking about. Yeah, I'm just, I was just always wondering about why there wasn't that kind of sympathy. I remember also hearing a story about uh, a boy who said that he was raised at a Scientology school and that if someone fell and hurt themselves, that he wasn't supposed to go over and help them get up, that that was going to be interfering with something. Yes. And so what is that about? 
That's a funny question, but it's an interesting one. Um, when you hurt yourself, and I, I hated doing this when I was younger, I would tell my mom, contact assist, don't work on me. Like that was my line. So when you hurt yourself, um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about moments of pain and unconsciousness becoming recorded engrams in your subconscious that later you would act out on or whatever. So say you um, stub your toe, the whole idea would be to have everybody around you be as quiet as possible. And then you run through the incident again, meaning you recreate it. You don't actually hurt yourself, but you go through all the motions and you do this over and over again until the sensation of pain is gone. And uh, I know it sounds <laughs> crazy, but like when you're, uh, when everybody says it works, yeah. uh, you know, you're the weirdo if it doesn't work. So <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that uh -huh. would be, that's why you're quiet. It's the same idea of the subconscious recording. So you wouldn't just run over and help somebody. Um, that's the only reason why. Oh, it's so interesting. Because it, it's just another example of how the social norms are all so different. And, and I think why it is such a challenge when people are raised here, like in L.A. And, and I'm living in L.A., but you, the way you learn to interact with people is so different, like you're raised in another country. Um, yeah, that's exactly how it feels. Yeah, you, you learn. I mean, we had our own entire culture, you know, it's like a leaving Scientology is like landing on earth and like, Oh, and then also realizing that a lot of things that you thought you knew the right answer to, or you thought are completely not like that in the real world. <laughs> and, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting tailspin at first. One more thing before you go. Vanessa will be speaking with all of us again next week for part two of our conversation. And also we'll have a third conversation with me that will be released in a few weeks on Patreon for the Patreon subscribers. So feel free to go to patreon.com indoctrination and become a subscriber. It's a very powerful interview and you will be notified as a patron when it comes out. So this week, Vanessa starts a conversation with me that I know is not an easy one. There is usually a lot of fear and risk, most definitely risk for people who know that when they tell their story, even though all they're doing is saying what happened to them and how they feel about it and sharing their experiences and their hurts and their insights, still it can cause organizations to mistreat them and cause their families and friends to feel the need to disengage from them. So the risk is real. Vanessa is in a place in her life where she is saying that she has the right to speak freely, to have her reactions to her experiences validated. I'm grateful that she entrusted me with her story. And we will, again, be continuing with the second part next week and the third fascinating conversation that will be released on Patreon. Vanessa talked today about how her parents got into Scientology and the way her mother got in specifically was something I wanted to talk about. Her mother got in by taking the Scientology personality test. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I have a lot of copies in my office. They're all pink and folded in three different parts. And I think they're pink on purpose, so they seem innocuous and kind of friendly. 
The test goes by the name the Oxford Inventory Analysis, and it has zero connection at all with the University of Oxford in England, or even Oxford anything, Oxford Shoes, Oxford Comma. It was developed by people who knew L. Ron Hubbard and is now not only given out on the street and is something you can complete online, but from talking to someone whose job it was to give out these personality tests, the goals were twofold and maybe even threefold. The first, according to him, was that he wanted people to truly believe that they had been able to evaluate themselves and see what they were really like by answering the many questions on this personality test. Some of the questions seem quite usual, while others seem quite bizarre. You can check it out. And the next part was to be able to bring people into courses and let them know what seemed to be problematic with their personality based on these scores, and to offer the courses and auditing and other programs to help people with their supposed personality issues. And the other reason, which makes it threefold, according to him, was that they were really making people feel indebted, that here they were receiving a personality test, and it was free. And it's usually something you need to pay someone quite a lot of money to get. So it was already setting up something that we've talked about, the principle of reciprocity. If I'm getting something that usually costs a lot of money for free, I will feel more willing and open to be wanting to give something back, to give of my time or my money or my openness to signing up for courses that then might help me. What people are not told when taking this test is that it's not considered a legitimate inventory or test of any kind by anyone within the psychological community or even the psychometric community. Psychometric community are people who give tests and do assessments and analyses. So the results then don't necessarily have any accuracy. And there is a rumor that someone told me that I have yet to substantiate, but here it is that L. Ron Hubbard was the person who first took the test, so his scores are the ones that show a healthy personality. And if anyone answers the questions any differently than the way he did, the graph of the results that they are left with is one that shows them to have issues that they need help with. So depending upon how you feel about L. Ron Hubbard and his mental health, then you will know how skewed this all potentially could be, and confusing it is, to say the least. So why does it all matter to me? It's important to know what method is being used to evaluate you and if it's based on something that is biased and to know why you're being given the test. What's the intention, the purpose, and is it for your insight, growth, and health or to sell you a product? And if you know about yourself that you're going to be swayed by and powerfully impacted by the results of such a test, and if it's going to affect how you feel about yourself and make you feel you need help, do not take a personality test that's handed to you on the street. We don't need a test that shifts and lowers our self-concept and self-confidence. It's easy enough just to get that in life, to get a skewed view of yourself. There are plenty of people who are bullied and insulted and inaccurately diagnosed. And I treat a lot of people who are raised feeling that they are, for example, overly emotional and overly sentimental when it's just that they were raised by parents who had no patience for emotion or did not know how to respond to their emotions or who had a difficult life when they were growing up so there was just no room for emotion. But it didn't mean that their children were overly emotional because in another family, chances are their reactions to things or their emotions would have fit right in and would have been seen as usual, typical, normal, thoughtful, caring. So it's always important to know how you're being evaluated and what the sources are of that evaluation and that diagnosis. 
if there's a particular leaning or a reason they have for wanting you to believe a certain way about yourself, then it's really important to understand what game is being played here. Within cults and within relationships where there is gaslighting, up is down and down is up and everything is quite the opposite. So the way you're being evaluated, potentially as oppositional or abusive or whatever other dramatic term might be used to label you, it's probably not only slightly inaccurate, but probably the opposite of the truth. I can't and won't stop you from taking the Oxford inventory, but after you take it and suddenly you have 12 other things you think are wrong with you, then the purpose of it, I think, was to influence you to feel that you need help and their help. And then, if they have just the right class or treatment or way to help you with your newfound problems, you'll know it's a business that's making money off this test's ability to stir up your anxiety about yourself. It can be a salesperson's job to try to sell you what you need, but also a salesperson's job to sell you what you don't need at all. To walk up to a person buying an antique car and say, oh, it'd be a shame for you to drive around in that car without just the right white wall tires to go with it. Or the salesperson to say that a beautiful dress is so perfect for you, and I think you should buy it, and we have it in your size, and the color is just right for you. But it wouldn't look right unless you have good shoes to go with it, so let me show you to our shoe department. We've all had those kinds of sales pitches given to us, but it's different when someone is telling us something about ourselves. And if you want to find out more about the Oxford Capacity Analysis, check out the video called Scientology's Personality Test, Science or Scam, on Chris Shelton's YouTube channel. It's wonderful. Those administering this test don't know about all that ails you. They are not qualified to tell you what kind of help you need. They are not inspired people or seers. Keeping yourself safe includes knowing when to tell if someone is a prophet or just trying to make a profit. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. <laughs>